In the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, the Lord calls upon us to flee from wickedness and to pursue righteousness. Indeed, there is much wickedness to flee, but there is also so much beauty and truth to pursue. Perhaps it is in this observation that we could acknowledge that the only way to truly flee wickedness is to actively commit ourselves and our lives to the pursuit of righteousness. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit may teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. What it means to me to be a disciple is, um, well, it means discipline. It's part of the word. And it means habits. It means staying strict to what you believe and staying strong. For me, being a disciple means following. For being a disciple of Jesus Christ, it means to follow Him for an entire lifetime and to dedicate your life to serving Him and trying to be like Him. To me, being a disciple means to follow the Savior even when it's difficult, or specifically when we need to do hard things to follow Him and to get closer to Him. Being a disciple to me means that we um, do our best to represent Jesus Christ and um, we do our best to serve others and make others happy the same way that Christ would treat others if He was on the earth. Being a disciple to me means being Christ-like, trying to live as He did, not being judgmental and loving others, and to just do everything He's asked me to do to try and be like Him. Welcome everybody, my name is Ben Lomu and I am your host. Our gospel scholar for today is Dr. Lynn Hilton Wilson. Lynn Wilson is a former adjunct professor at BYU and has been an institute teacher for more than 20 years. She is the co-founder and an active participant in Scriptures Central, the expansion of Book of Mormon Central, and is the author of several books and articles on the Scriptures. She is a mother of seven children, and they all have red, beautiful hair. Yes, they do. It's great to be here. Thank you. And our special guest today is Dr. Jared Halverson. Jared Halverson is an associate professor of ancient scripture. He has a PhD in American religious history and studies faith loss and anti-religious rhetoric. He hosts a podcast about the scriptures and works with people all over the world who are struggling in their faith. Jared, so happy to have you here today. It's great to be here with you, Ben. Thank you, and you, Lynn. And we're also joined by our studio audience. Thanks for being here today as well. And to each of you at home, thank you for joining us in today's discussion. Please follow along and share your thoughts with us on any of our social media platforms. Today, we've selected two topics to discuss that relate to passages found in Revelation chapters 15 through 22. The topics and discussions support and build upon the Come Follow Me resource developed and published by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The two topics we're going to discuss are first, the Lord invites me to flee Babylon and inherit the holy city. And second, he that overcometh shall inherit all things. After exploring these two topics with our panel and studio audience, we'll let our studio audience go and dive deeper into the scriptures with Lynn and Jared in footnotes. Okay, Lynn, I'm really excited to get back into the book of Revelation. Uh, what sort of background and history context can you provide within these first few chapters that relate to our first topic, the Lord invites me to flee Babylon and inherit the holy city? We're still in the seventh seal. Mm -hmm. So we've spent all these chapters prior, still in the seventh seal. We've still got three more to go. The Lord doesn't come until chapter 19. But the lightnings and the earthquakes and the voices are all these principles of destruction and distraction. And that's where 
the Lord is asking his saints to stay away from this. And we're introduced to this red dragon and the sea beast and the land beast has seven heads and seven horns, you know, so they're perfect in their corruption or they're complete okay. in their corruption or they're whole in their wickedness. So maybe. another example of this number seven that yeah. John loves to use, now we're using it as complete wickedness, complete evil. Yeah, because it's in the beast. Right. And remember, this is not the same word as the beasts at the throne, okay. you know, but hard to tell in, in King James. And then we finish up in section 18 as Babylon falls and our glorious heavenly kingdom is able to come and those who have fought valiantly for the lamb will conquer. Okay, Jared, I'm sure you've studied these plenty throughout your career. What's the connection John is making with Babylon and his time? And how do we connect that to our time? It's a great question, Ben. The great thing about Babylon is it becomes this symbol that's used throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, it factors largely in the Book of Mormon as well. It becomes this dichotomy between Zion on the one hand and Babylon on the other. Mm -hmm. And the choice then is presented to each of us. Which will you follow? Today, when we meet the mother of harlots, in chapter 17, for example. If the beast was the political aspect of Babylon, the harlot, the, the mother of abominations, can represent the religious aspect, the ideological aspect. And then in chapter 18, when you see this merchant city, there's the economic aspect mm -hmm. of Babylon. And so any area of our life that the world can work on and try to, to wean us away from God, uh, that is spiritual Babylon. And so it does become this symbol ever after uh, with the choice before us, Zion or Babylon. Why is it so hard sometimes to flee Babylon? Is there a connection with what John is trying to teach as to why they're being drawn to it back then? And how do we see that today? If you think about Jesus at the Mount of Temptation in Matthew chapter four, and the three big temptations that Satan throws in his face, they're perfectly mapped over the images of Babylon that John gives us in the book of Revelation. And so to see this changing stones to bread. Desire and, power. Yeah, power. Desire there, appetite. Mm -hmm. And what's the what's Well, And the then to the desire the worldliness and materialism yeah. and the wealth of the world. Excellent. And, and there's, yeah, there's the beast, there's the, the mother of harlots, and there's the, the merchant city. And there's actually a fascinating passage in chapter 18, verse 2. He cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And he's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And if you notice how the description changes, it started as a mere habitation. And so often Babylon begins, it's just where I live. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Los Angeles and it was an amazing place to be and so many fun things to do and Hollywood's nearby and all of that and a habitation, but give it enough time and it becomes a hold. A cage. And that's where it ends up, right? Mm -hmm. So to go from habitation to hold to cage until it really has But then you gotta really read verse you. four. I heard another voice come from heaven saying, come out of exactly. her, my mm -hmm. people, right. that ye be not partakers of my sins, that ye be not partakers of her plagues. Okay, so what's the draw? So we have the Babylon we're supposed to flee. In your experience, how are you helping others see that wickedness truly isn't happiness and that they can find joy and true happiness fleeing from Babylon and going into the, the holy city? That's great. Such a great question. And I think that's the question that we all need to wrestle with in our personal lives because we all have that little Babylonian pull, yeah. right? To me, there's a power, I'll put it this way. My wife was totally inactive from age 15 to age 20, which is the age group that I've spent a lifetime working with. Yeah. And so to think of her in this stage, totally lost. But in those college years, 
She kind of left everything and was at a concert. Living the dream, she was at a party school in Northern California and popular and everything. But at this concert, somehow she felt such clarity, this is hollow, this is mm -hmm. empty. There's nothing here. I'm supposed to be living the dream, but I'm starting to wake up to it. And I think there's something powerful about recognizing the world. Again, back to that, is it just a habitation? Is it starting to get a hold? Is it feeling like a cage? There's actually one more verse, if we can turn to it, in verse 12 and 13, still in still Revelation 18. 18, yeah. When I was a kid, I'd look at the Sears catalog and dream, right? Uh, that's how old I am. <laughs> uh, but to just search online and the kinds of things that I wanna buy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to see what Babylon is selling, it starts so innocently in these verses. Verse 12, the merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet. He goes on, thyene wood, all manner of vessels of ivory, all manner of vessels of most precious wood, of brass, of iron, of marble. This is starting to sound like and then Amazon, get the food, right? Cinnamon, <laughs> right? Yeah. And odors and ointments. But and, then uh... notice where he ends, right? Yeah, I'll sell you wine and oil and fine flour and wheat. How about beasts and sheep and horses and chariots? Oh, and slaves, slaves. and souls, souls of men. And I think once you realize, wait, that's what you're after? Yeah. That's the end of my Babylonian existence and that Satan wants to take no, well, take no prisoners. He wants to take all prisoners, yeah. right? And I think again, once you see that and compare it, and there's no book of scripture that does a better job of it than Revelation, giving you the chance to compare the bondage of Babylon to the freedom that God offers through the atonement of Christ in Zion. And once you see that choice clearly, it becomes a really easy one to make. Do you oh. remember the statement from Rome about it depends which wolf you're feeding? Right. And I right. feel like if we stop loving materialism and start loving the things of God more, if I spend more time in the temple, more time on my scriptures, more time serving, we can develop an appetite for that. And we can see how delicious it actually is because it is sometimes portrayed as not as tasty, but... Um, I love your word there, the appetite for it. Oh, it is. It is the, definitely the an appetite. The lusts of the flesh and the appetites and, and of the natural And when you can't man. eat something, you just stop desiring it. Yeah. And so let's just stop desiring that. You were also mentioning about how do you see it differently. A few years ago, I started going blind. And I am so grateful for the perspective that's giving me. I don't see the whole picture anymore. Okay. Spiritually, I can step back and say, you know what? I don't see the whole picture yet. The Lord's opened up the window this far. I can take time to do it. And when the Lord is asking us here in the scriptures to be his servants and to fight with him in this great and last battle, we can see it through his eyes. And then we can see clearly, but we won't see clearly if we're fogged over by Babylon. Yeah. yeah. So I would love to hear from the audience. What are you doing to flee Babylon and focus on Zion? Yeah. Jake. I think the best teacher for me when it comes to fleeing Babylon is experience. Okay. You know, and like we were talking earlier about wickedness not being happiness. I just have had so many experiences of just, you know, it could even be simple things where I have a prompting to do something, something small, you know, and then I don't do it. And then later in the day, I look back and realize, you know, and I'm like really sad or I'm upset or stressed. And I'm like, oh, if I, I bet if I had done that thing, you know, then I would have been in a lot better position or I would have had X, Y, Z done. And so what helps me the most to, to really come to Zion, to come to Christ, is to just remember those experiences and, and hopefully not make them again. And Jerry, I'm sure you've seen this a lot where 
There are those that feel like all hope is lost, that they cannot overcome Babylon. What do you uh, teach them? What do you see works in helping those overcome some of these evil enticings of the world? Nothing beats the Holy Ghost. Okay. And nothing beats the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's why I love the book of Revelation, because it so clearly puts side by side the choice that's before us. And to me, there's such comfort, there's such joy, there's such relief when you come to understand what the Savior has done to be able to free us from those chains. He is our deliverer. I've seen that when students understand that it's not too late for them, no matter how deep they've gone into things, they can escape that cage that we talked about. One of the first images we see of Christ in Revelation is him holding a key and he knows the way to get us out. You know, as we look at this revelation, I see a huge struggle between good and evil and this constant pull. And it can be really challenging to, to know when the choices you are making are leading you down the right path, if you're doing the right thing. And we had a question come in from our viewers about how to make those tough decisions. Hello, my name is Kiana and I'm from Florida. And my question is, how can I trust that when fleeing a situation that is not good for me spiritually, mentally, emotionally, that I am being led by the Spirit? That's a fabulous question. I feel like in my life, the prophet's counsel to repent daily sometimes has to be taken hourly, depending on mm -hmm. what my thoughts are. And I'm a musician, so it's like fine-tuning a, a, a note. When I am striving with all my heart, to walk worthy of feeling the Spirit and always remembering my Savior. I want to be closer to Him mm -hmm. because I feel the Lord's presence around me when I'm striving to constantly be correcting my thoughts and ideas and words. Thanks, Lynn. Jared? In some ways, the fact that you're fleeing the dangerous situation at all is proof that you're being led by the Spirit because that's what the Spirit does. So the book of Revelation is an example of apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature focuses on the end of the world, but it's really dualistic. Light versus darkness, good versus evil, like you mentioned before. And if you are taking a step away from Babylon, then by definition, you're taking a step towards God. Okay. And the light grows brighter and brighter unto the perfect day, Doctrine and Covenants 50. Uh, to see, even like when we were little kids and we'd play the game, you know, getting hotter, you're getting hotter, or <laughs> colder, colder, just <laughs> sensing within you I feel closer to God than I did a moment ago or mm -hmm. a day ago or a year ago. You're headed in the right direction. Or I don't have the same spiritual appetite that I used to. I feel like I've lost a step or two. Well, then there's again, the, the, the dualistic nature of it all. There's, you're just moving across this same spectrum, closer to God or further away from him. Well, thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm excited to continue it. For the audience, you've been wonderful. Thanks for sharing your thoughts as well. And for you at home, how has the Spirit helped you embrace the future with faith? Share with us on Facebook and Instagram. I can try to find joy in challenging times if I try to not focus on the hard, scary things and focus on the good things in my life, my family, my grandchildren, and all the many blessings that I have. The way that I find joy in challenging times is by uh, being grateful and realizing that I can just be in the moment, realizing that I'm a human and that I'm experiencing Earth the way that it's supposed to be, and that this is just life and the good and the bad, it's all supposed to be. A way that I find joy during challenging times is by 
remembering what's most important. Um, so that's the savior. That's, you know, staying close to my friends, maintaining my relationships with my family. Um, because whether it's a challenge in work or a challenge with school or, or whatever I'm involved in, um, those things are only temporary. But family and friends and my faith, those will endure. Our second topic for today is he that overcometh shall inherit all things. All right, Lynn, I know you've been chomping at the bit. Oh, You've been waiting for these <laughs> chapters, and I'm so excited. Uh, I'm going to let you just tell us what we can learn about these chapters and what we have to look forward to. After Babylon falls, we finally get the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this, of course, is what our Savior prophesied during his mission, and all the prophets of the earth have looked forward to this day. The crazy thing is we only get a few verses on it. Mm -hmm. You know, we have all this working up to it and uh, we get it announced in chapter 19, verse seven. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. To me, this is so key to the whole section because what we were waiting for is not for the wickedness to be taking over the world. It was for the righteousness to be to the level where they could be saved and they could be instruments in the Lord's hands. That hand. changes. That really does oh. change our mentality as we approach yes. the second coming. You know, wow. I, I know there's other challenges in the world right now, but the bridegroom is our savior. And so the bride, once we have made ourselves ready, once I have made myself ready, am I ready? Then our savior can come. And the marriage supper begins. We have this excitement that anyone who has a testimony of Jesus Christ is receiving the gift of prophecy. In fact, that's verse 10, if you wanna look at chapter 19. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And finally, in chapter 20, the Savior comes, we have Satan bound. It says for a thousand years, mm -hmm. but remember all these numbers may be figurative. Yeah. If you have not received the mark of the beast, then you will be able to live with Christ a thousand years. And that is the most beautiful part that we're all looking forward to. And he says in the next verse that they shall be priests of God and Christ and reign with him. To me, it's really helpful to read other translations and they put it in the correct gender for the Greek and it's, and it's priests and priestesses. I mean, mm -hmm. this is for everyone. It's not age determinant or race or gender. You know, it's just fabulous. It's interesting to me at the beginning of Genesis, we have humanity entering into the presence of God and then being asked to leave, to learn by experience, to distinguish good from evil. And now after 7,000 years of experience, we are again entering into the presence of God and then permanently sealed to be with him. Because we learned good from evil. Because we learned, <laughs> yeah. So Jared, as we, you know, we talked a little bit about this the duality concept, and if you look at the very end of chapter 18, it's pretty dark and, you know, yeah, it is. And, and then you compare it to just night, all of a sudden 19, it's almost like there's this pause, and then you can see the sun start to rise a little bit, the birds start to, you know, to sing a little bit. And I noticed that four times we hear this word, Alleluia, this idea of rejoicing. I wanna give you a chance to talk about just some of the joy that comes from these chapters and what we have to look forward to amidst some of these dark times. Such a perfect word, Alleluia, right? And you're right, it comes up over and over at the beginning of chapter 19. And to compare that to the alas, alas, that you hear over and over at the end of chapter 18. And so 
as Babylon comes crumbling down, those that were so tied to the wicked world, alas, alas, where am I going to buy my cinnamon and my, my odors and, right. and the souls of men, right? And, and yet to shift then and realize, wait, we made it. We endured it well. We can be exalted on high. The Lord has delivered us from that and praise Jehovah. There's hallelujah. Perfect time to be singing the hallelujah right. chorus, right? And so much of it comes from, from this kind of feeling. Even the imagery that's used of a wedding and a wedding feast, it doesn't get any better than that. Mm -hmm. To think of the experiences that my wife and I had to develop a relationship that we wanted to make eternal. And that's what is happening here. And I think about, I had to propose to my wife for seven months before she finally agreed to marry me. I'm an acquired <laughs> taste. Uh, and to think about how long it took me to prove to her, I'm worth marrying. Mm -hmm. And that phrase of she hath made herself ready. And yeah, it took 7,000 years to get there, right? But to think of preparing for that relationship all through the Old Testament last year, it was covenant. And now it's time for that covenant to truly come together. To think of what Paul says to the Ephesians, husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And that's what happens here. To think about what we do to make ourselves ready. And then the next verse, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. We do our very best to make ourselves ready, but at the end of the day, it is granted by a loving Lord, I will give you these robes of righteousness. I'll grant you these white robes because in verse 13, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. I'll wear the red so that you can wear the white. You've done your best to make yourself ready, but only through the grace of God and the atonement of Christ. Elder Maxwell called them robes of reminding red. And to look at him and see him in his coming, I'm just amazed that he was willing to wear my red and to take my sin upon him. And then role reversal, I'll let you wear my white because I'll wear your red because that's what you do when you're in a covenant relationship. And I'm just, I'm, there's nothing more glorious than these kinds of images. And if that doesn't get you excited for the second coming, uh, I don't know what will. Well, I hope that it's not offensive to people who haven't had a relationship like that or acceptable because in the Old Testament, we saw repeatedly how God chose to talk about a relationship of marriage with his people, with Jerusalem. He was either married to Zion or he was married to Jerusalem mm -hmm. and their children were Israel. Well, and I think that longing that we have, if, especially if we if, haven't had that blessing, it's, a yeah. it's, it's a longing for him. Mm -hmm. You know, that even the best of earthly marriages pales in comparison to the kind of covenant relationship God wants to develop yes. with each of us. And to see him married to his church. I mean, it goes back to what we talked about in all these chapters pre previous about Babylon. If it's described as the whore of all the earth, which the Book of Mormon describes as the great and abominable church, and re you realize with all this dualism and parallelism, Christ marries his church and Satan marries his church. Wow. And so Christ covenants with the church, Satan covenants with the world, and it's this custody battle with us as the kids, and who, which father are you gonna choose and which mother are you gonna choose? And since Satan knows nobody's gonna choose him as father, he hides behind his wife and says, then please choose the wow. world. Please choose the world. Look at how amazing she oh, is. Look at is how awesome. Right? Wow. And then, but then the problem is we think we can choose Christ and the world simultaneously, which we can't. 
Because what that does is it forces Christ into a relationship that he would never enter into. And no wonder the, this, she's called the harlot. Of course Satan is going to marry someone who is inherently unfaithful, right? But to force Christ into that kind of relationship, he's not going to touch it. And so to me, it makes the choice so easy. That's not the mother I want to raise me. Christ protects and presides over us. The church nurtures us. I mean, the imagery is so, so powerful. Well, and it's a little bit tricky sometimes because the church is not perfect. We're a bunch of humans mm -hmm. trying to do our best. But I feel like it's that idea that we studied in Isaiah about the Lord is making us a, a polished shaft yeah. in his quiver. Well, and, and, and that's why he came, yes. to perfect his wife, which is us. Christ grants to us his robes of righteousness, and, and that's humbling. So I, I would... My mind is blown, by the way. That was so neat. I would love to hear, as, as Jared is talking about preparing ourselves, what are you doing to rejoice and find joy as you prepare for the second coming? Yvonne. I'm going to compare the second coming as we've been talking a lot about marriage. Uh, me and my fiance, we just got engaged. This is Nick. Um, and I'm going to the, the same thing I do to prepare for marriage is for the second coming, I would live worthily. Okay. And that brings joy of its own. But by living worthily, when the second coming does come, all I can do is rejoice rather than look back with regret of what I should have done or what I could have done or how I could be better. Um, I, I've done all of that. I've lived worthy. I've tried my hardest. So there will only be rejoicing. So how special is that going to be on your wedding day when you are fully prepared because you have lived the kind of life that has gotten you to where you need to be? Well, I have been living my whole life trying to be worthy for a man who's worthy of me. And so um, I'm so excited. I know that my heart will be so full. What, what a beautiful analogy. Right, yeah. I mean, and what a compliment to Nick over here. You know, and, and, and did you see what she said that she wants to find someone who's worthy of her, somebody who knows their own worth? How important is that as we prepare and march towards the second coming? Yeah, and the scriptures are so beautiful because the only way we can do that is when we live our temple covenants. Mm. You know, this imagery of the white robes and the imagery of the washings and the anointings that are all saturated throughout these verses here in Revelation also share that beautiful thought of, if we wanna prepare for the second coming and rejoicing, let's rejoice in our temple worship now. Let's take each step there and remind us that this is preparation to actually meeting the Lord and entering into his presence. Yeah. So Jared, as we talk about this second topic of overcoming, for those that want to have a fresh, clean start at the new year, what advice can you give them about overcoming so that they can inherit all things? Well, first of all, there's a lot to overcome. Mm -hmm. And so if you're struggling with that, welcome to the club. <laughs> uh, and the fact that the Lord came is evidence that we weren't meant to overcome flawlessly. We were going to have some fits and starts and some struggles and some falls, and yet he comes to pick us up and help us move forward. Right? The fact that he would even use the word overcome lets us know there's hurdles and there's obstacles and there's going to be a challenge. And you see a lot of them in the book of Revelation, right? But to get to a point, in fact, even at the beginning of the book, when we saw the less symbolic, a little bit, slightly easier to understand uh, chapters with the, the messages to the seven churches, 
all seven of them are promised something if they will overcome. Mm -hmm. And if you look close enough with eyes to see, they're all temple blessings. And so back to your comment about the temple, that's really where we come to overcome. And if we can overcome the world, if we can overcome the great and spacious building, if we can overcome the mists of darkness, if we can overcome the mocking and pointing fingers, if we can overcome the beast and the mother of harlots and the merchant city, if we can overcome Babylon, it's revelation, it's Lehi's dream, it's all of this. If we can get there, then the blessings are absolutely glorious. When you get to verse three, chapter 21, the tabernacle of God is with men. He's with us now. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And then to me, one of the most intimate scenes in Revelation verse 21, four. verse four, mm -hmm. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. I get this sense of, wait, sorrow, pain, death? Oh, that was so 21st century. Uh, <laughs> we are so past that, right? It's those have all passed away and we're on to better things. And to wipe away tears, I have students come into my office weekly at least and I usually spend time every week or two with someone around the world zooming over some faith crisis that they're in the middle of. And often there's tears as a sense of loss of struggle in a marriage uh, if your spouse is wrestling with their faith or parents mourning and weeping over children that are, that are going astray. And if they're in my office, I always have a box of tissues right there on the, and I have a backup box in my drawer. And some will, you know how sometimes when you cry, you apologize? I, I'm so mm -hmm. sorry I'm getting emotional over this. I quoted a, a wise Relief Society president once and I just said, tears are my jam, okay? <laughs> so it, you're totally welcome to cry. But I'll, I'll just hand them, the closest I've ever come is handing them the box. Mm -hmm. I have never wiped a tear yeah. from someone's eye except my wife and my children. Yeah. And to see that level of intimacy that the Lord would, that we're comfortable enough with him mm -hmm. and there's this closeness and, and he just wipes it away. All that's behind you now. And so to overcome, he's made it possible. Yeah. We've talked so much about overcoming Babylon, wickedness, sin, yet in chapter 21, the tears he's wiping away are tears of sorrow, crying, things that sometimes are out of our control. And we're gonna to turn to Lynn now as we talk about overcoming. What are some of the things that you have overcome that you're looking forward to having, you know, maybe some tears wiped away that only the Savior can do? I think probably the most meaningful for me is that the Savior can heal the blind. So I'm looking forward to that. But in the meantime, I rejoice that um, I'm really learning a fabulous lesson that we do not see all that God sees. And as long as I can keep it on a spiritual level, it's a little bit easier. And I feel so blessed to have the gospel. It has taught me to trust in the Lord. He can wipe away my tears. Even though I'm not living during the millennium, I can feel the joy of Him reigning in my heart can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this and how much I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation. Really, thank you both so very much for all you've shared so far. And for our audience, thank you so much for being here with us today on our last episode of the year. You've been wonderful and what a way to end this year and as we enter into a new one. Thank you so much for joining us. 
And for all those of you at home, we still have so much to cover from Revelation chapters 15 through 22 and footnotes. Stay with us. The Spirit speaks to me through prayer. I rarely feel the Spirit as much as I do when I'm praying. And when I'm praying, it's feelings of peace or words that come to my mind. For me, the Spirit's kind of like a spark. I don't know if you can imagine like a match lighting, just that initial, maybe like burst of warmth and kind of excitement. And other than that, I think it's words that come to my head, maybe like an inspiration to serve somebody or the answer to a question I've been praying about. The way that the Spirit communicates with me has always been a mystery to me. It's never been too straightforward, and everybody talks about how they feel something or they hear a thought or they have a thought or they hear a voice, and that's never happened for me. What has happened is I noticed that things tend to work out when I'm doing things that are right, and so that's how I've found that the Spirit is directing me by always trying to do what I know is right usually tends to work out pretty well for me. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. We've dismissed our studio audience and are looking forward to building upon our previous discussions about Revelation chapters 15 through 22 with Lynn and Jared. I, I, I'm this so, is my favorite part. It, I'm so excited. I, I just love getting this is, into this. It's yeah. really, really fun. Wasn't it fascinating to see on these plagues back, if we're going to go back to chapter yeah. 16 or 15 even, but these seven plagues are so consistent with Moses' 10 plagues. Mm, that's... So, but they're not, they're so much worse. Okay. <laughs> but I'm fascinated with the fact that the Lord still will protect his people. Can we look at some of these specific plagues in these verses in uh, yeah. chapter 16? So he's asking these last seven angels to go down in chapter 16, verse one, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Now this is a translation from the BYU commentary that Michael Rhodes okay. has, has written. He wrote a whole, in fact, it's really nice to read a new edition from the perspective of a Latter-day Saint. Mm -hmm. Because these wonderful King James translators, and I love the NIV translation mm -hmm. and the BSB and the ESV, they have their own bend. Mm -hmm. And these are Calvinists. You know, 80% of the translators of the King James had Calvinist leanings. And I just feel it's really sweet to read other translations sometimes. But these bolds, it sounds as if do you remember in Solomon and Moses' tabernacle, they described that they have these golden bowls mm -hmm. that they used yeah. in their temple worship? I wonder, because it's all temple imagery, yeah. is that what we're supposed to be thinking about when they're pouring these bowls out as plague? What do you think the bowls are, or well, the vials, well, or what do you think this is? I've heard it said that if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you better be an Old Testament scholar, even more than a New Testament scholar. Mm. Oh, uh, that okay. There are, I think, if I remember the math correctly, there are 405 verses in the book of Revelation and 275 of them refer to an Old Testament passage or make an allusion to the wow. Old Testament in some wow. way. And so it's, I mean, if we're raised on movies and music and you start a line that everyone else then can, can finish. Oh, absolutely. For this audience, the moment he begins bringing up some Old Testament allusion, they're going to, his audience is going to start yeah. filling in the blanks, right? Mm -hmm. And so definite focus, especially on the Temple of Solomon. I mean, even when we were discussing earlier about the mother of harlots and you look at the colors of her clothing, there's the high priestly robes. There's the high priestly right. robes. Right, right, right. And so it's this, this, this counterfeit. counterfeit. Yeah. Exactly right. Oh exactly goodness. right. 
So the first angel pulls out a grievous sore upon the men in verse two of chapter 16. And I have these all paralleled in my footnotes with Exodus chapter mm-hmm. seven through 12. Mm-hmm. As Moses is, is pulling these out, scorching heat and the blasphemy and the frogs. Down in verse 16, he gathered them together to a place in Hebrew called Armageddon. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that it is the angels who are doing God's work in this way, because you think of God as a merciful and a just God, how could he be pouring out torture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think we don't see the whole picture. Yeah. I, I think the Lord has wisdom in all of this. Well, what's amazing to me about that is when you see them, again, these plagues being poured out, think of, think of something like the river being turned to blood, right? And exactly, Nile uh, 2.0. But then in verse six, when he says, for they have, so he's gonna explain himself. You've been trying to justify your sins, it doesn't work. Let me justify my justice. Let me tell you why this is happening to you, why you've brought it upon yourselves. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And so this violence, the anger of the last days, that we just can't seem to get along with each other. And fine, if that's what you're thirsting after, that's all you'll have to drink. And so this self-destruction that leads to Armageddon and then beyond. But when he says at the end of verse six, for they are worthy, again, that's a, an unfortunate translation. Uh, it's like, oh, they're worthy, so we're gonna destroy them. No, they're worthy of their destruction. They're okay. deserving yeah, it's of, an, of what, and, and then he repeats it in verse seven. I heard another out of the altar say, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. This confirmation, this reassurance, that, that is what needed to happen. Mm-hmm that we haven't turned. There's a great verse in 2 Nephi 9 when it speaks of the unrepentant finally coming to judgment and they admit to God, you were right and I was wrong. In fact, you were right to punish me. I deserve this. And there's this recognition on the part of the world. We've lived in such a way that this is exactly what we deserve, which is tragic. That, that 2 Nephi 9 verse, they say, thy judgments are just, my transgressions are mine. Uh, and I love that. Wait, my transgressions are mine? Of course they are. Who, who, whose else would they be? But then you realize, well, they could have been someone else's. Mm-hmm. They just wouldn't allow Christ to take them from them, Aww. right? And so, of course, they're mine. And that possessive pronoun holding on to oh, our own sins tragic. is totally tragic. And then the, he says it in 9, they repented not. He says it in 11, and repented not, which goes back to the plagues of Egypt where God was trying to soften or break Pharaoh's heart so that he'll finally let Israel go. It's interesting that we're talking about Babylon because Babylon belongs in the Book of Mormon time period. The Romans Mm -hmm. are his time period, and yet we still go back to this 600 BC conquering of the first temple with the Babylonians. Which I think is so valuable. I mean, in scripture, pick your metaphor for the wicked world. Right? Right. Egypt. Yeah, Egypt's one because we were in bondage, but we get to go free. Doctrine and Covenants section one, preface of the Doctrine and Covenants, he uses idumea or the world. And so he he explains his, the synonym that he's drawing. And so there's Edom and there's, so there's Esau against Jacob. So there, and then Babylon becomes the ultimate one that keeps mm-hmm. coming up. Interesting, again, when you, when you book in the Doctrine and Covenants with section one as the preface and 133 as the appendix, in section one, he mentions Edomia. In section 133, he keeps coming back to Babylon. And so let's take the entire unfolding of the restoration and bookend it with these two revelations that are all about fleeing Babylon and coming to Zion. 
And I love the fact that Zion is not only the pure in heart, but there's no poor among us. Yeah. I used to feel like the law of consecration in order to prepare for the second coming of the Lord, you know, the bride's not ready until we're living the law of consecration. I used to think it was about taking care of the poor. And now I feel it's about everybody working. Mm -hmm. It's about everyone serving each other. If well, and can you imagine how much more we'll have to give to the poor if we'll stop giving it all to the merchant city in chapter 18? You know, okay, if we're not, we better if, move ahead. If, we're still in 16. But right, you know, if, we're not, if we're not so caught up in the delicacies and dainties and, and deliciousness yeah. of, of hey, I like temporal life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm with you, I'm with but, you. But I just think there'd be so much more that we would have. Mm -hmm. I'm not spending it on myself. Yeah. I'm not amassing it. It's, I'm looking for ways to be able mm -hmm. to build Zion and like you said, not, not have any poor among us. The interlude here in chapter 17 gives us a little bit of background on who this great and abominable church is. And I appreciated in the earlier session when you tied that in the Book of Mormon to all that fights, anyone who fights against Christ yeah. is the great and abominable church. Right. And of course, in early Americana, in Joseph Smith's day, the great and abominable church were the Catholics because we were a Protestant nation. Mm -hmm. You know, I've gone through so many of their writings and they blame the Catholics. We do not right. blame right. the not Catholics. We don't blame anybody mm -hmm. who's trying to do good. Yeah. It's those who are trying to support the devil. Well, I think the unfortunate verse that people turn to for that is chapter 17, verse nine. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And so, Rome. Right? <laughs> and, yeah, and so everyone thinks, oh, well, there's the seven hills. He hill. served this mission I in Rome. Mission. <laughs> there you go. Right. But to think, oh, but, but the problem is, by the, by the 19th century, you, you think of Rome and you don't think political power anymore. You think religious mm -hmm. identity. And so unfortunately, it is interpreted in that direction. Yeah. Whereas in John's day, it's, it wasn't no. Roman religion that they right. were so concerned about. I mean, whether Revelation was written during the, the, the persecution under Nero or, or the persecution under, under Domitian. I was gonna it, say, it's, it's still, definitely Domitian, but it's yeah, yeah. It's still yeah. a challenge of we are up against the world. So earlier, like I was saying, is it Edomia? What's our metaphor? Is it Egypt? Is it Babylon? John would have said, it's Rome. It's Rome. And, and it's not Roman religion. It's not Roman Catholicism. It's Rome is the world's superpower. It is the beast. But the thing about Babylon is it seemed so invincible and yet how quickly it, it passed, yeah. right? And so that to me, Seventh because- Seventh wonder of the world. Right, exactly. Whether the Egyptian, I mean, these d dynasties and such a long-term kind of a, a world superpower. Whereas Babylon, I mean, that's what I love about Isaiah 14, mm -hmm. where it's li looking narrowly down at the king, at Lucifer saying, really, is that? It? You you're were the, the one? one? Yeah, you're <laughs> the one we were so afraid of? What, did, what was I thinking? And to be, live in a world that seems so invincible, so, unavoidable, inescapable. One and earthquake. Yet, yeah, and, so to, and, and even in chapter 18 when it's describing the, the downfall of this city, in, if you look at verse 10, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. That's how fast this happened. And then skip down to 17. Yep. In one, one hour, hour. Yep. And the then great then 19, riches come to naught and mm -hmm. every shipmaster, they, it describes a tsunami. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And then 19, same thing, in one hour is she made desolate. And that to me is why Babylon is the, one, is the overarching metaphor because it's, mm. it seems to be the, the biggest of the, of the biggest and yet it fell so quickly. And to see the world that we're up against and thinking that, oh, there's such permanence there and 
No, it's amazing how fast it's going to fade. Are we gonna, as we go to 19, um, are we gonna talk about, I, I love the analogy about, he's not gonna come when the wicked are ripe for destruction. He's gonna come when the okay. righteous are ready to receive him. I have heard it in multiple general conferences, the wicked are wicked enough. You know, This one is from Elder Todd Christofferson. What is crucial for the Lord's return is the presence on the earth of a people prepared to receive mm -hmm. him at his coming. Mm -hmm. This is actually from Elder Nelson now. Do the spiritual work to find out for yourselves. And please do it now. Time is running out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hastening the work. He is definitely are, are, are hastening we the, the work. Are we the holdup? Yeah. Yeah. Are we the hold I think we are. But I love this image in chapter 19 when we're singing the hallelujah and the smoke is coming from the throne of God and the servants of the Lord are praising God. In verse 5, Joseph Smith changed the word from his servants to saints. And you know, John is living in a world where there is an enormous hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And not only just in the Roman world, but in the Jewish world mm -hmm. too. You know, the high priest is up here and in the Roman world we've got Caesar. And supposedly at the time, an average middle-class family had eight servants or slaves. And the word servant and slave is the same word in Greek. And on average, one third of the Roman empire was a servant or a slave. And this is John talking about that we are to be his servants. I mean, this is his world. There were so many slaves and servants, even slaves owned slaves. But my heart just says, these words of being a servant meant so much more to John than they mean to me. When I think of being a servant of God, I think, yeah, he's invited me to join him. No, I have been baptized. I've put on his name. I wear his jersey every day. You know, I am a disciple of Christ and I have committed to serve him. Meaning in my morning prayers, I don't say, okay, today I need some help on A, B, C, and D. And E would be really nice if you could get it in the next hour. You know, I, I, I got a parking place. I need a parking place and I need to find my keys. You know, here's your to-do list. for the Exactly. Day. I mean, who is serving who here? <laughs> Uh, in Revelation 22, the way this book comes full circle, uh, where we're seeing in verse one, this pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the lamb. In Ezekiel's vision, it heals the Dead Sea. So take, it brings life to that which is dead. And here we're seeing a similar promise in verse two, in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there a tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now we're back to Genesis, back to the Garden of Eden, and we made it back. We've passed the, the cherubim and the, and the flaming sword, and God is welcoming us back full circle to finally be able to partake of the tree of life. We've reached the crescendo of Lehi's dream, and to think of all that we've had to overcome, that word that keeps coming up in Revelation, to be able to get to this point, and here is this Here's the water, the living water. Here's the tree of life. It's all life after a book that's punctuated by so much death and so much destruction. Oh, in the Doctrine and Covenant section 87 followed by 88, where 87 is this prophecy on, on war. And there's, you can read section 87 and it maps pretty well over the book of Revelation. But then the very next chapter, here's the olive leaf and it will heal. And what God is offering us through this incredible book to be able to heal the nations. I love what you said earlier, Lynn, about we've got to learn this. We've got to master this book of scripture. 
Uh, Joseph gives us more help to do it than anyone else I know. Right? Section 77, Joseph Smith translation, his sermons. Yeah. What a blessing. Yeah, I, I'm just amazed that when Nephi has his, he's trying to understand his father's dream. And his father's dream was apocalyptic in, in nature, just like the book of Revelation is. And then Nephi has his visions, which are apocalyptic as well, stark duality. He talks about the church and he talks about the Destruction core of, the of all the earth. Yeah, all of this. And he gets you through New Testament history. He gets you through the Book of Mormon history. He gets you through Restoration history. He gets you right up to the end right. times. And then the Lord says, enough for you, Nephi. Let's let John take it from here. And to me, that the Lord would pause Mr. I glory in plainness. Part of me is like, oh, no, no, Nephi, help me, help me navigate this. <laughs> this would be so Teach much easier. Me, right? But I think there's something about the symbolism that makes this book perpetually relevant. That no matter what time period, if you don't happen to be living in the last days, the book of Revelation still speaks to your time. Because it gives you this choice between good and evil, and, and we need to choose well. To see this opportunity that God gives us to return to the tree, to find the leaf, to, to drink from the water, to be able to have this celestial city, uh, the gates being open wide in chapter 21. If I can, just when I was in Israel as a student studying abroad way back in college, we had a concert at the very end of our semester, and we students were putting it on. And we invited all of the friends that we'd made from the Palestinians and the Israelis and just to be in the Jerusalem center with an audience of Muslims and Jews sitting right next to each other and Israelis and Palestinians and, and then a bunch of Latter-day Saint Christians up on stage singing. And one of the songs that we sang was the Holy City, mm -hmm. which speaks of ancient Jerusalem and then Jerusalem at the time of Christ and then Jerusalem at the time of the book of Revelation. And when it describes it, just speaking to Revelation 21, I saw the New Jerusalem, right? And when it says that, and all who would might enter, and no one was denied. And when you see that in Revelation 21 of the gates, this is verse 25, the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. So all we have is day, and the gates are always open. And to sing that to Jews and Muslims that are at odds, to sing that in a city that feels like it needs to close its gates all the time. I think sometimes as Latter-day Saints, we're too closed yeah. and we're guarding the gates instead of making sure that they're open to everyone. If you want to come in to Zion, we have room for you. The, the gates are wide open and for the Lord to invite us in that way, no wonder this book ends with such a crescendo to help us understand that the Lord wants us to come home. And if there's a sweet young mother trying to raise little kids with the book of Revelation, if there's a, a husband and wife one, scratching their head wondering, what do I do with this during family home evening? It's incredible the sets of pairs that John gives us. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something even a child can wrap their head around where let's look for the counterfeit. Here's the beast, ah, here's the lamb. Here's the marriage supper of the Lamb of God. Here's the supper of the great God. Here is the, the new Jerusalem. Here's the merchant city. Uh, and over and over throughout, there's Zion, there's Babylon. And so what, what choice do you want to make? I think Joseph Smith once said that the book of Revelation was the simplest book ever written. Right. And he got a lot more than Doctrine and Covenant section 77 then, huh? Yes, well, <laughs> but, but, but the fact he needed section 77 oh, should give us a pause to say, wait, Joseph, 
If it's that easy, how come you had to ask? Why did you need divine revelation to unlock some of the symbolism? And I love the thought that maybe it's not the symbolism that's so simple. Maybe it's the choice that it's presenting to its readers that is the simplest choice you'll ever be asked to make. And so as, as, as Joseph understands Wait a minute, does it really boil down just to that? Yeah. It's Moses. I have set before thee life and death, wherefore choose life. And once you do, you can't wait for the second come. I mean, the way he ends this, what a fitting capstone for the New Testament. In verse 20 of chapter 22, he which testifieth these things saith, surely I come quickly. Amen. Now you'd think that that would be a good way to end the book and let Jesus get the final word. If I were writing it, I'm not gonna speak after the Lord Lord does, right? But this is John we're talking about. And so he just can't help himself. And I have to add two last thoughts. His final one is because he loves people so much. His final one is his nod to the second great commandment, where he says in verse 21 to his readers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Because you're going to need it. Mm -hmm. Especially you living through this period, you're going to need all the grace that you can get. So I pray God will give it to you. But the other one, his nod to the first great commandment, as soon as the Lord says, I come quickly, I love that this beloved disciple who must have missed Jesus is just saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. He said that too, because his mission has to last until the Lord comes. (laughs) And remember, it gets bitter in his belly. It's sweet here. He he wants him to come a lot sooner. And he's writing 1900 (laughs) years before. But I I love the personal, this is the beloved disciple. And for him to say, Jesus, you said you'd come. Please do it. Yeah. I've seen how it's going to go. I see the end. I want to get past the hard things. Can we get past 87 and get to 88 in the Doctrine and Covenants? I've seen the great and spacious building. Can we get to the tree of life? I want to be at that new Jerusalem exactly. with those gates open yeah. night and day, allowing all into Zion who want to come. And I love the thought that maybe he just misses his friend. Yeah, exactly. I just want to thank you both for giving of your time and your talents to, to be here Uh, to close out this year. Thank you both so very much. And thank you at home for joining us for this discussion from Revelation chapters 15 through 22. I encourage you to record and act upon any impressions you've received. For additional study and teaching resources, visit byutv.org slash comefollowup. Next week, we ring in the new year by beginning our study of the Book of Mormon. Thank you for watching. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting. 